The Bible is a big book. For a church to teach through all of its stories in any meaningful way would take years. So what usually happens is certain stories and characters slip through the cracks. For those of us who have spent any amount of time in church, we probably know a good deal about Abraham, Moses, David, and Jonah. We certainly should know about Jesus. But there's a good chance we haven't heard much about Deborah, or Phoebe, or Mary, or Priscilla. So, in this series, we hope to rediscover the important and often untold stories of women in the Bible. We appreciate you listening. May these stories compel us all to contemplate the beautiful and sometimes overlooked diversity of God's people. We are more than half the church. I drank a cup of coffee this afternoon because we have 72 slides to get through, folks. Are you ready for that? I don't, I don't quite know if I am. This is one of my favorite texts in the Bible, um, and we are going to leave a lot of stuff on the table tonight. Um, we're basically gonna be reading the creation story through a specific theological lens where we are trying to understand um, a bit about anthropology, how people have been created and what people were created to do. Last week, we started this new sermon series called Half the Church uh, with the subtitle Important and Often Untold Stories of Women in the Bible. We started it in a really strange place. We went back to the book of Judges and read through and studied a horrific text, uh, one that if you have had experience with it in the past, it might have uh, caused some trauma even reading uh, that passage and trying to figure out what in the world we're supposed to do with that. I had a lot of texts over the past week um, from some of you guys trying to figure out what in the world was going on uh, in that portion of scripture. But today we're gonna go back to the beginning because I think it's important for us to kind of find our bearing um, in this understanding of, of women in the church, but not only women in the church, but humanity and who we are created to be. Now, I will tell you that our reading for this evening is going to take up a lot of the slides that I mentioned uh, in this presentation. Now, if you're the type of person that's gonna start counting slides, it just might not be your night, okay? So let's just buckle in. I do think um, I had texted Meredith earlier saying she wasn't gonna be here, and I said, well, you're gonna miss it. I got a lot of slides I'm getting through, and she kind of registered some disbelief that it was going to, to go well. And I said, actually, I think it might be one of my shorter sermons, so I don't know what that says about me or about us or, or what we're doing here. But this is Genesis chapter one, and, and this doesn't really fall into the untold stories because I think that we hear this a lot. However, I do think that we bring some of our own cultural baggage to this text. For example, uh, before we even get into it, when you think about Genesis one and Genesis two and three, the creation stories in, in Genesis, we automatically bring baggage to that, specifically the lens of science versus faith. Maybe some of you are immediately thinking about evolution or creation and how to reconcile those things. And I think that for many of us, as we have that grid, we have lost a lot of the message that's being communicated to people through this ancient text. If you need a blurb on this, we have to remember, as I'll show you throughout uh, this, this teaching, this is an ancient story. And sometimes the questions that we have about how and when and why and where were not being addressed in this text. 
okay? Now, I, I know that my own proclivity is to, to over-talk and to keep going on this text. So I'm gonna slide over here. We're gonna read it. And I'm going to invite you, especially for you very churched folks that have heard this. Many of you, each January, you say, you know what? I'm gonna read through the Bible this year. And you get through Genesis 1 and you do really good. So you've read this yearly now for a few years. I can't say if you've made it to Leviticus or Numbers, but if you have, it's rough sledding, but keep on powering through. We all like to, to know about... Um, you know, the uncleanliness and, and bodies and how that works out. If you're a middle school boy, you enjoy those passages. Okay, but this is Genesis chapter one, focus. Maybe the coffee was a bad idea. Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed all in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The word of God for the people of God. I'd like to begin this evening with a word of prayer before we get into our our teaching. God, we ask that you would lead us and guide us, that your spirit would be present, that you would keep us from error, that you would help us not to focus on the minor details of this story, to not interject our own 21st century American predispositions onto the text, to not make it say things that we want it to say, but to, to see what you are teaching us as your church through this ancient text. God, in the midst of our own setting in this cultural context. Allow us to hear from you. Allow your spirit to be present and to guide us. And allow us to maybe rethink some of the things that that we have committed ourselves to in the past. Some of the things that we may have heard, maybe even mindlessly that we have accepted. Help us to allow you to intervene and to teach us this evening. And God, where we are led astray, would you write the path? In the midst of all of these discussions that are about to unfold, would you also remind us that we are here in the midst of this diverse people celebrating the unity that is found only through your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pledge ourselves, we commit ourselves to following him. May we be about the work that he is about. May we surrender every, uh, every inhibition that we have May we surrender every ambition that we have and follow him wherever it is that he leads us. God, may you set the agenda and may we follow in accordance. God, we ask that you would have your way in this place tonight. Lead and guide. We ask these things all humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. So the nerd in me wants to, wants to scream this to you right off the bat. Most scholars would say that when you dip into Genesis chapter 1, we're dealing with the first of two ancient creation stories in the book of Genesis. Now, we're going to deal with some nerd stuff for a little bit, but that's going to help us to get to our conclusion at the end. I think it's really important that when you're reading the Bible, that you sort of dig into the context and wrestle with the text in order to figure out how that application is going to come to you, as opposed to taking your application application and forcing it upon the text. So we're going to spend a little bit of time doing some work this evening, but I think it's important for us to, to recognize that within Genesis 1, we have one creation narrative, and one creation narrative that is um, 
has very distinctive markers. For example, hopefully you picked up, as we were reading, there's certain cadences that happen throughout Genesis 1. And there was evening and there was morning the first day or the second day. And God saw what he had done and it was good. There are these, there are these uh, connections and um, repetitions in the text that keep happening. It is, a, it is a very orderly account of creation in Genesis chapter one. It's very structured. We have day one and day two and day three and day four. And the authors here are trying to teach us what God is doing in this story according to their very structured literary framework. That's a really fancy way of saying it. But these people were putting intentionality into their telling of this story in Genesis chapter one. It begins with these classic words. You guys read them every January 1st as you're starting off your Bible plan. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But it it launches into verse two that says, now the earth was formless and empty. And the reason why I have them in a different color and italicized is because most scholars would say that this is the framework upon which Genesis one is structured. It's according to the earth being formless and void. Okay. It looks something like this. In the Hebrew, this, this, these words are tohu, Vavohu. That's really fun to say, isn't it? You guys try. Tohu vavohu. The earth was formless, tohu, and, and empty, bohu or vohu, depending on how you um, accent this. It could also be translated formless and empty or confusion and chaos or wild and waste. Or what we see God doing is forming and filling. This is the structure upon which Genesis 1 is, is frameworked, okay, here. So, for example, hopefully this will make sense to you. In days one, two, and three, God is forming the world that has no form. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, but the earth, it was formless, and it was void, and these are problems. So what God sets about in the first three days is to form the earth with the raw materials that he has to work with. He begins to separate the light from the dark, He separates the light and the dark, and he calls the light day, and he calls the dark night. Then then in day two, he's separating, this is really strange, he's separating the waters from above and the waters from below, and he's putting an expanse into existence. It says this, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. Another uh, translation would say, let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate the waters from each other. God made the dome and separated the waters under the dome from the waters above the dome. This is really ancient stuff. The nerdy way of phrasing this, this is an ancient cosmology. The way they framed the, wor- the world in their, in their mind was there's water up there and there's water down here. And God, in order to separate it, he built an expanse. In Hebrew, it's called the rakia. Say rakia. I'm basically just trying to get you to um, say words back to me so you don't fall asleep. Because I know the temptation is there when we start dealing with ancient Near Eastern stuff. But the, the word there is based on a Hebrew root, rakah, which is like a metal worker ironing out a piece of metal that will, that will function as something like a shield. So God, in his magnificent beauty in this story, is hammering out this shield or this dome that he places over the earth that's keeping the water up there from the water down here. That's really stinking cool, isn't it? 
sort of, okay. It looks something like this. So in this ancient text, we see this rakia or this expanse or this dome or this firmament or whatever it is that you want to call it. And it keeps the water up there from the water down here. In day three, God takes the water down here and puts it all into one place. It's called the seas, and he allows dry land to appear. He's forming and fashioning all of these things in the creation account. The first problem that he's dealing with is forming the earth out of the raw materials that he has to work with. It's a very structured, literary account of creation. Now, what's really cool about this, the coffee's kicking in, people. It is kicking in. In Genesis chapter six, when it talks about the flood, remember Noah and the boat and all the cute animals that we talk about from time to time and all of the people die and how we don't really wanna tell that story to our kids, right? The way that the story is told in Genesis chapter six, it says that when the rains began to fall, the floodgates of heaven were opened. And we think, oh, that's a cool metaphor. But for an ancient audience, The rakia is up there to keep the water up there. And when it rains, the floodgates are opened and some of the water is let out and that's what was flooding the world. This has nothing to do with women. This has nothing to do with the important and untold stories of women. I'm really just nerding out for the, for the last three minutes, okay? But this is one author's retelling, and he's showing how the, the world is being formed, and then in days four, five, and six, the, the, um, the world is being filled. So you have light, and you have darkness. You have day, and you have night. But then in day four, which corresponds to day one, you have the sun, and you have the moon. And the throwaway line in Genesis 1 Oh yeah, and the stars, which is cool because in the ancient world, the the lights, the sun and the moon and the stars, they were like really important, almost divine figures. Astrology was a real big thing. But in Genesis 1, God's like, yeah, I created it. I created the sun that you guys worship and I created the moon, which you guys worship and I created all the stars, which you guys read your horoscopes daily and uh, like live your life according to that. But I, I did that. And for an ancient audience, that was completely radical. But look how it, it corresponds. So we've got the sun and the moon and the stars, which for us, during the day, the sun's out and shining. And during the night, we've got the moon and we've got the stars. In day two, it's got the, the sky and the sea, and God creates the birds and the fish. And then in day three versus day six, we've got dry ground and vegetation, and he creates land animals and humans. I don't wanna spend a lot of time here, but do you see the structure, the intentional structure that the author is giving? In days one, two, and three, he is forming the world. He's separating things, and he is making the palette upon which he can fill the earth with all of these things. So if we have sky and sea, then he's going to put fish and birds in those places. It's really cool. All of that to say, I just wanna look at the last thing that he creates in Genesis 1, which is humans. That was a lot of buildup for not a lot, okay? So my friend Meredith might listen to the tape and say, bro, you could have probably cut that last eight minutes, but now we all know, right? And we're all on board and you guys are better off for it and so am I. Okay, but tonight we're gonna talk about the creation of humanity in Genesis chapter one to kind of frame what we're doing. God says, let us make mankind in our image. Don't go, this is, I'm gonna focus here on the churched people. Don't go to a veiled reference to the Trinity here. When God says, let us make, 
in the context, it's probably not bringing in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Let that be something, something else. For an ancient Near Eastern audience, they would have expected this to be um, perhaps God speaking to the divine council, the other uh, angels or what have you in front of him where he's saying, we've got an idea here and I'm gonna go ahead and execute this. Let us make mankind or humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they might rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals that we have here. So God is creating humanity with a job to do. This is the climax of the creative work in Genesis chapter one. God gets down, he, he has formed the world, he has filled the world, and now finally he begins to create humanity in his own image, unlike any other creation in Genesis one, and he gives them a job to do. Some scholars would call this um, humanity as God's vice regents or vice gerents, which means that they are ruling on earth for God. God has entrusted them with the task of reigning and ruling and taking care of the animal kingdom and taking care of the world that he has created with intentionality and beauty. And now he gets down to these people that are invested with his image and he says, I want to give you a job. Run this place. I will be God, but you, you guys take it and you go with it. So, he, so God creates mankind or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created, literally in the Hebrew, it's actually a singular, so it means in the image of God, he created him or it, but it's going back to humanity. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he creates humanity, male and female. He creates them in Genesis chapter one. Now what's interesting about this is in Genesis chapter one, what we see is um, God investing men and women with his image, with his likeness, giving them a job to do, and then commanding them to go and to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. But in this text, what we see is equality. This is why we're talking about this passage. This is why we're going back to the beginning as we are in this sermon series on women. And they're important and untold stories, or you might even say they're hijacked stories. Because in Genesis 1, what we have is equality. What we have is mutuality. What we have is shared responsibility. He created them, investing them with his image so that they might rule. There is no hierarchy in Genesis chapter 1. There is no secondary status in Genesis 1. There is no power plays in Genesis chapter 1. In the image of God, he creates them, male and female, he creates them. This is the story of the one author in the first creation account in Genesis chapter one. And what's important for us to see is here God is investing his creation with his image and his likeness. He's giving them a job to do and there is no hierarchy. In Genesis chapter two, we have a different creation account. Remember, Genesis chapter one, God is kind of off to the backdrop and he's, he's speaking things into existence. Let there be light and there was light and he's separating the, the, um, the light from the darkness and he's separating the waters from above and the waters from below and he's looking at things and he's saying, ah yes, that is very, that's very good. In Genesis chapter two, however, we get a very different image of God. The, the really nerdy German scholars uh, noticed immediately 
that the name for God that's being used in Genesis 2 is different. All throughout Genesis 1, God is Elohim. Say Elohim. It's a generic term for God. It can also be a, a name for the God of Israel. But in Genesis chapter 2, the title that God is given is Yahweh. In the Jewish community, this is a word that is not spoken. It is not a word that is uttered. Instead, they say Hashem, which means the name, or they say Adonai, which means Lord. They do not vocalize or verbalize Yahweh, but in Genesis 2, it's like this new character shows up. And not only is this new named character the God of Genesis 1, but the way that this new named character is operating is very different. The story, perhaps you remember it, the way that God creates in Genesis chapter two, he creates mankind by taking some of the dirt and forming man from the clay of the earth. It says, then the Lord God, Yahweh, um, formed a man from the dust of the ground. If you care, there's a, a Hebrew play on the words here. Adam, meaning humanity or man, and Adama, which means ground. They're linked. They're, they're united in some sense. And God is taking the Adama and he is forming and fashioning the Adam and he is breathing the breath of life into his nostrils to allow him to become a living being. God in chapter two is not back and transcendent looking at his creation saying it's very good. God in chapter two is in the midst of his creation forming and fashioning and getting his hands dirty. Imagine an artist when you go to their sweet New York loft and you walk in and they're covered in paint and they've got all these huge canvases that are all across the room. This is the God that we see in Genesis chapter two. But there's a problem when God creates man in Genesis chapter two, he looks around and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I need to make a helper for him. The Hebrew word there is ezer. And we might hear that like a helper. Oh, that's sweet. Somebody that can maybe, um, you know, hang out and do the laundry or something like that. Not what is happening in the Hebrew text. The only person to which this word is ascribed is God and woman. Ladies, that's not too shabby, okay? So what we see here is God wanting to create a helper, not someone who can just fold the clothes and do the laundry, but someone who will become a partner, a true, completely mutual, co-equal partner I've been talking too much, but in the Hebrew text, um, the next thing that happens in the story is God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I need to create a, a helper for him, an there. So God creates the animals to see if they'll fit, and they do not. And you can just see where Jewish interpretation has gone with that over the years, but then God finally creates woman. The Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. He puts the man into a deep sleep and removes the rib or removes some of the side of his, his body to create woman. Notice, he doesn't take some of the feet. He doesn't take some of the head. He takes the side of the man to demonstrate true companionship and mutuality and even equality in this scenario. 
we see in this text in Genesis chapter two, man and woman in the garden as equals. They are uh, mutual in their relationship. They have shared responsibility. They are still tasked with taking care of the garden in this passage. It's not until sin enters into the world where mutuality and equality becomes hierarchy. For the folks that have heard this story before, God places these people in the Garden of Eden and tells them not to eat from a specific tree. They do. Specifically, we have Eve talking to the serpent in Genesis chapter three, and the serpent kind of messes with her mind and convinces her to eat the fruit that is pleasing to the eye, and it looks good, and it'll taste good. Go ahead. Did God really say that this is gonna happen to you? He starts messing with Eve's mind, and she takes the fruit, and she eats it, and then Adam shows up from nowhere, and she hands it to him, and he eats it. He's kind of like the mindless person in this story that's just there, but everything gets set in a bad way. And as the the consequences of their sinfulness is being unfolded, we have this line in Genesis chapter three that says, where God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Understand the framework in creation, equality, mutuality, shared responsibility. And when sin enters into the world, your desire will be for your husband but he will rule over you. We have a jacked up framework where now the woman wants to assert herself to become a leader, if you will, in this relationship. And we also have the man on the other side who wants to explore his own dominance and to become the authoritarian. And we have these people that are vying for power. And there's a a mess where it moves from equality and mutuality into hierarchy, into this um, submissiveness that is not each other uh, submitting to one another, but yet one dominating over the other. And this, we have to remember, is a consequence of sin. The way that this story is told, um, one Jewish interpreter says, it's quite clear from the description of woman in 2.18 and 2.23, where woman is from the side of man, where they have this uh, mutuality and equality, that the ideal situation, which hitherto existed, he said, was the absolute equality of the sexes, but the new state of male dominance is regarded as an aspect of the deterioration in the human condition that resulted from defiance of divine will. That's really smart. That's really scholarly. But I'm going to read it again. Focus in the new state of male dominance. This this jacked up structure, this, this hierarchy is regarded, according to Nahum Sarna, regarded as an aspect of the deterioration in the human condition that resulted from defiance of divine will. When they go about their, their lives and they disobey God, their relationship gets completely marred and screwed up and we start to see things deteriorate. Another scholar says, in God's garden, as God wills it, there is mutuality and equality. In God's garden now, permeated by distrust, there is control and distortion, but that distortion is not for one moment accepted as the will of the gardener. In Genesis 1 through 3, as we put aside all of our questions about science and faith, as we put aside all of our questions about how and when and why and where, when we look into the narrative of this story and we see how God is creating people as equals, 
to be mutually submissive to one another, if you will, to have shared responsibilities, to reign and rule over this place together. Yes, with their own specific qualities and characteristics. Those do not go away, but here we see there's no hierarchy in the beginning. It's not until sin happens when the hierarchy gets completely jacked. The story of the Bible begins in oneness where in the same way we see from all eternity God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit together in unity, this triune God that has this fellowship and relationship that is so beautiful and it's rooted in their co-equality. We see man and woman created in the same way, but when sin enters into the world, that is broken and it is no longer oneness, but it becomes otherness where each person is begin to vie for their own status and power and place. But through Christ, we move from oneness in the beginning to sin and the entrance and the consequences that brings and the brokenness in relationship, the otherness that people feel, the ostracized nature of the relationships that people have. Perhaps you feel on the the short end of this hierarchical spectrum, but through Jesus, oneness is brought back into the picture. This is the wrong that is righted through Jesus. This is the text that we keep looking back to in Galatians chapter three. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is slave nor free, and there is no male and female. Through Jesus, we are one one, we are equal. Through Christ, equality and mutuality is restored. Through Christ, we are a part of this new creation that he is designing, where no longer should we be allowing her desire to be for her husband, and her husband will rule over her. We should instead see something a bit different. Through Christ, we lead, in a way of speaking, a return to Eden, where we live within Quality and mutuality and shared responsibilities. And we lead not here, but through Jesus, we participate as things were from the very beginning. Scott McKnight says, God created male and female as mutuals. They were made for each other and they were at one with each other. But sadly, the church has far too often perpetuated the fall as a permanent condition. We look back to Genesis 3. Her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. And we say, oh, that's how, it, that's how it should be. And this is where we start to get into different theological positions. But so many of us have bought into this. I had a conversation just this past week um, with someone where we were talking about roles and responsibilities. And it was, um, we were talking about the, the man as the spiritual head of the household and what that means And for some of us, I think that we determine that it means that we have to garner up a new makeup in order to lead effectively. We have to gather the people at the the table in the morning. We have to sit at the head for the men and we have to lead the devotions and we have to lead the prayer and we have to be the one that can, can spur that on. Meanwhile, the wife is gifted and called and completely at ease, having beautiful, Jesus-centered conversations with the kids at the table in a way that maybe the husband is not. We perhaps have not allowed ourselves to explore the giftings and the callings that each one of us uniquely have in our own creative way. 
where God is endowing us with these roles and responsibilities that we can make good on. When we look at this story here and we hear McKnight saying that the church has too often bought into this, my hope is that we would tell a different story. And I think that it works like this. We could look at it from a church perspective where we start um, thinking about equality and what that looks like according to men and women in the church. But I also think on a, on a more individual level, I think for the husbands in the room, perhaps we should begin to, uh, to pray through what that looks like to be in relationship with our wives, to serve in that role well, to inspire them to pray and to lead while we are with them in that. Perhaps for some of you, you might not be married at this, at this moment, but there's other ways that you can promote and live out, not otherness, but oneness. One example that kind of hit me this afternoon was, this is gonna be dicey, are you ready? There's a big problem in our culture. There's a big problem with the things that we consume as individuals, whether they be on our phones or on our laptops or on our television screens. There's ways that we view people. There's ways that we also diminish the humanity of people. There's ways that we live into this not oneness but otherness where we start to live and we start to see and we start to um, see people as material possessions to be had. We could go in a number of different ways here. I'm kind of hinting towards pornography, but there's other ways that you could could live this out as well, where we, we engage not in a oneness or a return to Eden, but we live within a brokenness. We live within a hierarchy where we see people as less than, and perhaps through this passage and even through the beginning, we can see how God created for something completely different to happen. Now, I told you at the very beginning of this, and I'm bringing it to a close here, there's a lot of theological stuff that we're leaving on the table. This was one viewpoint into Genesis 1 through 3, but I'm hopeful that we can begin to see the contrast between the way that God has created in Genesis 1 and 2 with people with this shared responsibility and the cost of sin and what that has broken and how we as the church have been tasked with righting that wrong in a way that celebrates the oneness that is available through Jesus For married couples, that might look one way. For single people, that looks a different way. But through Jesus, hopefully we are all moving towards this goal of celebrating people for who God has created them to be, namely as image bearers, as folks who are made in his likeness, who are equipped with a task and a calling. And we as God's people should be celebrating that and encouraging people along. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of TRP's podcast. The Restoration Project is a church affiliated with a cooperative Baptist fellowship located in Salisbury, Maryland. If you're in the area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sundays at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, we believe that there is room for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for past teachings, feel free to check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com slash restoresby. Or to make it easier, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We hope to see you soon.